Well, why don't you turn in the Bible to Philippians 3 then, if you haven't already. I want to read to you, um, mainly focusing from verse 8 to the end of that sort of paragraph at the top of the page there. But I want just to remind you of what Paul's been saying. He's been reminiscing on the life, the former life he had. This is Saint Paul, as he's commonly known, Paul the Apostle, reminiscing on the former life that he had as a, uh, as a very, very devoted Jew before he encountered Jesus um, in a very remarkable way and his life was turned upside down. And he remembers all of that and says, all of that was, I was very, very advanced in terms of among my peers. Um, I excelled in my studies of the, of the law. I was really, I was a standout student. And he's not bragging, he's merely stating the truth about the former life he lived. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, you know, whatever opportunities were mine, whatever I had achieved to that point, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, it all became to me as nothing when I saw Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, indeed, so from verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. I want you to underline in your mind that word everything. It's very important for what we were looking at today. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want to begin by asking a few questions to try and find our way into the subject and what we're thinking about this morning. Here's my first question. How can something which is free cost you everything? If you've heard anything about the message that Christians believe, it is that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, the message of Christianity is that Christ saves you and that it is his work, not yours. That it is a message of free salvation, quite contrary to what people believe about Christianity. It's not something about self-improvement and earning your way in, but it's given to you for free. But at the same time, if you know any of the, the sayings of Jesus in the gospels, you realize that in order to become a follower of Christ... Jesus says, to be my disciple, you have to, what? You have to take up your cross, your instrument of dying, and follow him. You have to take up your gallows. You have to take up your electric chair. You have to take up your lethal injection, to use modern examples, and follow me. It, to be a follower of me, he says, doesn't, isn't just a casual commitment. It will cost you absolutely everything. Um, you, you must lay your whole life down in order to be my follower. So that's my first question. How can something which is free, the offer of salvation, also cost you absolutely everything to be a, a, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a Christian? Here's another question. And they're all kind of on a similar tack, really. 
Why is it that the most devoted followers of Jesus, both in Scripture and through history, seem to pay the highest cost, seem to lose the most in life? Why is it that those who are most radically committed to Jesus seem to live lives in which they pay the highest price uh, on, on, in life? So just give you a few examples. For example, this can be true in the financial realm. Generally speaking, the more our hearts are committed to Christ, very often it's reflected in a very visible way in generosity. That you lose more of what you possess even as Christ conquers your heart. So the more radically devoted we are to Jesus, we find that we have, we're less entangled with, with, with money. Uh, and we want, to, we want to give it away. Another example of that is in marriage and family. Very often the people who have been most sold out to Jesus have been the people who have, who have lost the most in terms of just their day-to-day experience of family joys. Uh, I'm thinking of an example like Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary to China in the 1800s, the later half of the 1800s. And he was very, very unique in his day because he, he, he went to China and saw the other missionaries who were hanging out on the coastal towns and mainly engaging with English speakers and not really denting, making a dent into China in terms of the work of the gospel. And Hudson Taylor, he paid the price by traveling inland, um, experiencing real what it is to be cut off from people who are like you. He dressed as the Chinese dressed. He really enculturated himself completely. But it wasn't only him who paid the price. His family paid the price. He was married to Maria. And Maria, um, she had nine children before she was 33, five of whom died uh, in childhood. Only four lived to to become adults. And all four of them, by the way, became missionaries in, in later life. But Maria had these nine children, and then at the age of 33, she herself died shortly after giving birth uh, from cholera. And this was not unconnected from the life and lifestyle they had chosen. And there's Hudson Taylor, a young man, uh, a missionary, living a sold-out life for Jesus, but paying the ultimate price in terms of earthly relationships, children dying, his wife, his precious wife dying on the mission field. And... you wrestle with this and think, why is it that, you know, we would think that the more devoted you are to your, to your master, whoever that be, the more rewards you experience in terms of comforts of life, because that's the way the world works. The more you lay your life down for your boss at work and you're, you're, you're the CEO of your company or the owner of your company, the more you expect them to reward you and to make your life more comfortable. And yet it seems often that this is the opposite in the Christian life. The people who are most devoted pay the highest price. I think also about the experience of suffering and persecution in life. The people who are most sold out for Jesus seem to suffer the most, don't they? This week, just hearing again the story of John Bunyan. He was a preacher in the 1600s in England. And there was a law at the time that said that if you did not belong to the Church of England, the Anglican Church, you were not allowed to preach. And if you did, you would be put into jail. And John Bunyan, who is known for being the author of uh, many books, but most famously of The Pilgrim's Progress, which, by the way, has been one of the most printed books of all time. He kind of practically invented the genre of the novel. Um, 
through this writing. But he wrote it from a jail cell in prison when he was in prison for 12 years in Bedford Jail. Why? Because of his absolute uncompromising commitment to Jesus. Paying the highest price, cut off from wife, from children, from his own church family. Why? Why does Jesus allow us to pay high price in order to be radically devoted to him? Why does it work like that? Why often do people who live for Christ die prematurely? Either through overwork, like Charles Spurgeon, who preached not far from here in the, 19, in the 1800s. He worked 16, 17 hours a day, preached something like 12 times a week, and uh, he was endlessly, he, he wrote more uh, volumes of literature than anyone who's ever lived, all for the cause of Christ, wanting to further the gospel, and he died in his 50s, relatively young. Here's my third question. Again, all related. How can we, sitting here, you and me, how can we reconcile the suffering of discipleship with the gospel being good news? Is it just an ironic name that we say that the gospel is good news? That's what the word gospel means. The message of Christianity is good news. When the good news is, you know, you don't get to do all the things that you were doing before you have to say no to the sins that you're enjoying and indulging and you've got to turn to Jesus and offer your life in obedience and you've got to experience immediate vilification or rejection by your colleagues if you dare even to tell them that you follow Jesus and that you're serious about your faith and even your family. It's not uncommon for families to turn against people who become Christians. Why this high price? These questions are so important. They're important for you if you're not a Christian. You're thinking about embracing faith because you're weighing up the decision. And Jesus says you must weigh it up. Otherwise, you look like a fool. If you're like, he uses an example of someone building a tower. He says they better check that they've got all the materials they need. Otherwise, it's going to be half built and you're going to be a laughing stock. So you've got to, he says you've got to count the cost. You've got to look at what it means to follow me and decide whether you're really serious about this or not. And he, there's aspects of Christianity you think I'm so appealing. And then there's other parts you think, I don't really want that. I don't really want to, to pay that price. I don't want that cost. But this isn't just a decision for the beginning of the Christian life. This is a decision you make continually, even on a moment-by-moment basis, and certainly a day-by-day basis, as you walk through the Christian life as being a disciple of Jesus. What do you do when you're wrestling with Questions of what you feel you might have lost or missed out on because of your decision to be a Christ follower. So many kids brought up in Christian homes go way off the rails in their teenage and early years and early 20s. Why? Because they suddenly feel the pang of what they feel they're missing out on, what looks so glitzy and glamorous and delightful in the world all around them portrayed everywhere in the most attractive imagery. And they think, I'm missing out. Following Jesus is too difficult, and I want that. I don't want this. So they go off and try it, discover whether it really satisfies. And a Christian, you know, it's not like you just deal with that overnight and it's gone. Those desires resurface. They can resurface until you're an old person. You never get over the lure of the, the suck and the draw of, of, what, of the world. 
is irrelevant to you, friends, when we feel that temptation for what we can't have, when we feel that, that, that temptation to hold back from full commitment to Jesus. Let me ask you, would you say that you are fully committed to Christ? Fully. 100%. There's not a person in this room who could really say that, truthfully. There's always that tension, isn't there? That tug of war in your heart. Why? Because the cost feels high, doesn't it? All the time. It's different for each one of us where the cost is, where you feel that, that, that wanting to pull back. But we all feel it somewhere in our hearts. Now, I want you to understand, friends, that nobody is more qualified to deal with these questions than Paul. Even as he wrote about his life, his former life before he became a Christian, it was the part we didn't read when he says that I was, you know, I was the perfect Jew. Suddenly, it's like it brings all of that to the surface again. And he remembers what he had and what he lost. What did he lose when he became a Christian? The, the word that you've got to fix here in your head is he lost everything. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. He lost everything. He lost not only his attainments in, that he sold his life out for in terms of Judaism, he lost friendships. He lost the advantages of his career. It may not be particularly appealing to you, but you know he would have been, he was on track to become one of the most famous and important rabbis of his generation. Now that's not an ambition that many of you share, so you may not sympathize immediately with it, but whatever it is you love, whatever it is you're committed to, that's the thing that he loved and was committed to, and he lost it. He lost the, the praise of man when People admire you for your abilities and your dignity and your exceptional talents. I think all of us want something of that. Paul lost all of that. He lost it completely. He became a laughingstock. You know, you think about how much Christians are mocked these days. Uh, you know, and look at the reaction to the whole thing around the DUP and how they were regarded as this kind of beyond the pale group of fanatics when actually just... 30 years ago, they would have been seen as mainstream Christians. Well, what, what, what's going on there? And you know, I don't want to be associated with that. I'm not one of those guys. And here's Paul. He stepped into that category and was like, okay, I'm a lunatic. I'm a fanatic. And he lost everything. All the, the admiration of, of his peers. He lost family. He never married. He lived a hard life on the road. Friends, if anyone can answer the question for us of how, we, how you pay the price, it's Paul. And I want to help you to understand the answers to this, giving you a few ideas here. The first is this. This is really just a kind of a principle. We need to just fix in our mind to understand what I'm going to say later. So here's the first point. That all of life, all of life involves exchanges or trade-offs. And being a Christian is no different. All the decisions you make in life are a trait, are an exchange, where you pay for something 
with, at the cost of something else. And being a Christian is no different. What, what do I mean? What I mean is this, that you are making trades all day, every day. They're the obvious examples of the things you, you literally go out and buy with trading with cash. So you say, I need my money less than I need this thing. Whether it's food or, what, or a travel ticket or whatever. You say, I need, I need this thing more than I need money, which is why you make that trade. You say, oh, I'm going to exchange money for the thing I need right now. We, we pay the price. Uh, we make a trade. We make an exchange. When you go to the gym, and you work out. You pay the price in terms of energy spent, time spent, devotion spent, um, sweat, in order to gain something, whether it's the noble aim of wanting to be healthy so that you can live for Jesus, or whether it's the less noble aim of just needing big biceps to impress people, whatever it is, you pay the price in order to gain. We do it all the time. We make these exchanges. There's something we lay down in order to gain something else. We do it in relationships. We pay the price in time and love and affection, generosity, compliments and warmth in order to gain what? In order to gain something reciprocal, a closeness, an intimacy, a friendship with another person. So we're doing this all the time in very obvious ways, but also less obviously. Uh, you've got to see that this is, your whole life is lived as a, a constant series of transactions. We talk about spending time. Why do we use the language of spending time? Because time is your commodity, isn't it? You have a finite amount of time on this planet. And when you're young, you often don't imagine that that's true. But it is true. You have a finite amount of time alive, and you are always spending time. You're spending it even at this moment. You're paying a price for what? For the hope of learning, or the hope of growing, or the hope of something here in this moment. Whatever it is for you. And we do it all day, every day. We are very literally spending every moment of our day to gain something. What are we trying to gain in life? Well, how do you spend your time? That's the answer. And we're constantly weighing options in terms of exchanges and transactions that we make in life. We, we, we weigh the option between Netflix and sleep every, every day for some of us, don't we? Between the box set and sleep. You weigh that option. Which is more important to me right now? You weigh the option in terms of completing that work or going home to rest. Every day, that, that's a battle when you leave the office. You know, do, you, do you complete it or do you, do you lay down all your stuff and go home? You, you're constantly making these sort of decisions about exchanges and transactions. You make in the big areas of life. You know, when you get married, you, you trade in singleness for commitment and devotion. That's a two-way thing, right? I hope you kind of tracking with me at this point, because I want you to ask the question, why, why do you do the things you do? Why do you make certain exchanges? And the only answer is because at any given moment, you decide in your mind that there's something you want or need more than the thing you're willing to pay. So you lay something down to gain something else. Some of those decisions are wise and some of those are foolish. We're wise when we choose to spend time with friends rather than watching countless box sets. It's a wise choice because friends enrich your life. We're stupid when we choose escapism over dealing with our responsibilities in life. But we are constantly, every moment of every day, 
making these trades and decisions, spending here in order to gain this, and making these transactions. And at any given moment, what you're doing is, is, is an indicator of what you value in life. The time and energy that you're devoting to the things of life indicates, it says something about your heart. It says what you love, primarily. And the Christian life, friends, is no different. When you become a Christian, you make an exchange. Some of those exchanges seem very appealing. You lay down your sin at the foot of the cross. You give it to Jesus, and he gives you a perfect record of righteousness. How does that work? It's the mystery of the gospel. It's not that you earned it. It's not that you deserve it. It's that he gives it to you for free. And that, my friends, is good news. Do you want to know what it feels like to be clean? Do you want, do you want to know what it feels like to stand before God without any, any iota of guilt in your heart? Then you come to him and confess your sin and he forgives you. But as you move on in the Christian life, these exchanges feel increasingly painful. As you're wrestling with temptation and sin, you're paying a price when you say no to certain things. You're paying a price in terms of immediate pleasure, immediate gratification. For what? What motivates you to say no? If you can't answer that question, then you just give in, don't you? You can only answer that question if you're willing to trade that for something better. It's true of our devotion to God in day-to-day life in terms of prayer and worship, intimacy with Him. Why would you pursue those things when they cost so much in terms of energy, emotional energy and and discipline and uh, time? The only answer is because there's something you hope to gain. That that transaction is important to you because you think, I can spend this because I want to gain that. And unless you can answer what that is, you're not going to spend this. You won't do it. It's true of all the obedience of the Christian life. You only walk with Christ in obedience when you're saying, I want this more than I want that. And so your life is, your Christian life, just like every other part of your life, is a constant decisions of exchange or transactions or trades where you're saying, I'm going to pay this price in order that I may gain something. And unless you know what the something is, you will never pay the price. Unless you're convinced that it's good and it's better and it's worth it. That's the first idea. All of life involves these exchanges, these trade-offs. And here's the second one then. That Jesus, Jesus Christ, is the greatest gain that a Christian can run after, that anyone can run after. I don't know if you've really heard the heart of Paul in the passage we were looking at. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of what? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want you to understand, friends, that Paul loved Jesus more than anything. What made him so radical in his life was the measure of his love for Jesus. So you cannot look at this man and think, there's a religious man. There's a grim, 
determined, stoical, religious man. That was not what he was like. Rather, you look at him and see someone who was captivated. Rather than the religious person that you imagine, a better image is of the swooning teenager at the concert of their favorite artist. Just falling and fainting when they see, when they catch eye contact. That was how Paul felt about his Savior Jesus. He was so obsessed with and captivated by and delighted with Jesus. It was a personal thing. It wasn't a religious thing. It was a heart thing. That's why he keeps using the language of knowing Christ or of gaining Christ or that I may know Christ. He doesn't mean at the intellectual level, just studying him like you study him in a textbook. He means to having his heart so captured with and delighted with and happy with the knowledge of who Jesus is and knowing him personally. Now, friends, you've got to understand that because, listen, every person who becomes a Christian has to some degree grasped that. They've grasped that Jesus is better. You never become a Christian until you come to that point, that pivotal point in your life when you say, Jesus is better than, than other things. But ask, ask yourself, what is Christianity? It's not, it's not just a way of life. It certainly involves a way of life, but it is not primarily a way of life, a kind of follow this path and do these things. Nor is Christianity a religion in the sense that we understand religions, a kind of a tradition that you and buy from your parents and walk in and identify with and buy. That's not primarily what Christianity is, nor is it just a worldview, a kind of logical system, a way of understanding life, the universe, and everything. Certainly it has those elements, but that's not what it is primarily. So what is it? Christianity is you knowing and loving Jesus. It's you being captivated by Jesus. It certainly incorporates all of what I've just been mentioning. It is a way of life because Jesus said, I am the way. But the the way is him. The way is not a a list of to-dos. The way is Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. And certainly it has an element of looking like a religion because it's got worship. But you understand the worship is worship of Jesus. Unless Christ is at the center, unless you're absolutely captivated by Jesus, then friends, you haven't understood what it means to be a Christian and you are not a Christian. It, has, it answers our questions. It is, has, it is a system. But you remember how the New Testament says that Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word of God. He's the reason, the rationale behind the universe. In Him, everything in life makes sense. So that, friends, we don't come to Christianity as some cold, dead thing. We come to it as seeing it as Christ. He is Christianity. Christianity is Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. It is all about Him. And this, my friends, accounts then for the difference between one Christian and another. Why is it that one Christian seems, as it were, to go through life constantly torn between wanting the world and wanting faith, finding that every day is a battle and more often than not you feel like you're losing, like you're sinking beneath the waves, like life overcomes you, that every battle with temptation, you seem to lose. That you're constantly struggling, you're constantly set back, and you realize that your heart is very cold. Why is it that some, some Christians are like that? And then there are other people who we love and admire and look up to, and we think, 
Everything about their life speaks devotion, sacrifice, selflessness. They're laying down their life completely. Their love for Jesus, their passion in prayer, their their generosity, their warmth, their compassion for the lost, their compassion to live their life out in service for others. Why are there people who are like that? And I'm like this. And friends, the only way that you can understand the distinctions between Christians, what the New Testament describes as those who are more or less mature, those who it also describes as having a hotter love for Jesus or a cooler love. Friends, the only way you can understand that and understand your walk with Christ is by recognizing that it is simply a difference between how much you have seen and been captivated by Jesus. That is it. When you see him, I mean when your heart, the, the eyes of your heart behold him, then your heart is warmed and your life is more red hot. Love and passion and sacrifice. And when you cannot see him, then your heart is cool. This is why when we move slightly beyond the end of the spectrum that I was describing to the very, the very edge, the New Testament says we're all going to reach that end at some point. Do you know what it says? It says when we see him, in 1 John 3, it says these words, when we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. In other words, all of the struggles of life, the toing and froing, the yes and the no, the hotter and the colder, all of that becomes a distant memory when, on the final day, we will behold him with our eyes completely. And in that moment, it says, instantly, you'll become like him. You'll be transformed in your being. Why? Because you're seeing him. And the minute you see him for what he is worth, every bit of mixture in your heart will vanish. That's the promise of the New Testament. It's something we can look forward to as Christians. All of the wrestling, all of the frustration, all of the failure will be dealt with instantaneously the moment that we see Jesus. Because when you see him, you will be captivated for eternity. But we're not there yet, are we, friends? So while we're walking through life, the difference between one Christian and another is marked by the difference between whether they have seen what he is worth or not whether they are captivated with him or not. This is what Thomas Chalmers, one of the writers in the 1600s, preachers, described as the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, when, you, when, you're, when your heart is captivated by Jesus, the love for lesser things begins to dwindle, diminish, and vanish. The stuff that you think delights you, but you know displeases God, that stuff becomes as nothing to you when you experience the expulsive power of a new affection. This affection which is so overriding that it drives out all other loves. You know like when people fall in love for the first time and it's as though all the other friends don't exist anymore. Because they want to spend every waking moment with the beloved. He said that's what happens when you, when you come to love Jesus. The things that you thought you loved, your affection begins to drain. Jesus is the greatest gain 
Here's the greatest gain. Are you struggling as a Christian? Are you struggling as not a Christian, thinking whether you want to give your life to this? Friend, it really comes down to this, whether you've seen who he is and what he's worth. Which brings me to the last point. And what Paul's saying here in this passage, he says this, that next to Jesus, when we draw a comparison, everything else in life appears as rubbish. I want you to think very carefully about this. And when Paul became a Christian, he terms them from pretty ugly things. He was, a, he was a persecutor of the church before he became a Christian. He was kind of the, 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 the ancient equivalent of a jihadi in terms of his hatred and loathing of Christians. He was like that. So he turned from some very ugly things that marked his past life. There's no question. And that stuff we'd all look at and say, well, that is rubbish. But you've got to also remember when he says, I count everything as lost, everything He also left behind some very good things. He left behind some very fulfilling things. The kind of things that that captivate our hearts on a daily basis. The love of friends. The fulfillment of excelling in your work. The joy of acceptance. Of having a name in the community. He lost all of those things. And here's here's his, his spiritual secret, friends. If you want to understand the mind of Paul, I think this verse will give you a greater insight than almost any other verse in the New Testament. If you want to understand his spiritual secret, what made him willing to pay the price, what made him willing to embrace Christ above all, it's this. He says, I count everything as loss. And then he goes on and says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. He uses a word, skubala, which was used, the Greek word was used at the time to speak about dung in the streets, of muck on your plate, the leftover food. It was even used to speak of half-eaten corpses. The other day I walked past a seagull, not a sea, a gull, whatever they're called. There's no sea around here, is there? A gull in London eating a dead pigeon in the road. It had blood all over its face. And uh, it was gouging at the, the corpse of this pigeon. That pigeon is scubala, roadkill. And Paul says, I look, to all my, I look at all my, my life without Jesus, the good and the bad. And he says all of it was scubala. All of it is roadkill. All of it is is crap that is on the street left by the horses and the donkeys as they walk along. That's the language he's using here. Rubbish. Now, uh, you've got to realize this guy's not, he's not an ascetic, someone who like denies the good things in life. Like the kind of, you know, there are certain religions that, that preach asceticism, which is deny your desires, deny good stuff in life. And have a very simple life. Of simple, Just eat brown rice and wear hairy clothes and sleep on cold hard floors. And deny your desires and that will make you more holy. Paul wasn't those guys. He enjoyed a good meal like the rest of us. He enjoyed a comfortable bed. He enjoyed the luxuries of life when he had them. Which was not often. But he enjoyed them when he had them. And recognized the good things as coming from God. 
You know, it's like C.H. Spurgeon. He's often asked why he smoked a cigar. And he says, I smoke a cigar to the glory of God. <laughs> he enjoyed the good things. He enjoyed the, the, the stuff that you can enjoy in life. And, you know, Paul wasn't the guy who sort of went through life saying we, must, we mustn't enjoy pleasurable stuff. He wasn't that guy. If he was that guy, you'd understand what he's saying here in a different way, wouldn't you? But he wasn't that guy. No, no, he, he, he loved his friends, his Jewish friends. He loved his community. He loved all of that. The only way he could turn his back on that, he says, is when I saw it all, the scubala in comparison with Jesus. It's a comparative way of looking at things. In other words, that when you see something that's so supremely beautiful, the things that you used to think were good now look somewhat less good. We've all experienced this, haven't we? The food you liked as a kid. You, you liked alphabeti spaghetti at one point in your life, believe it or not. Some of you still do because you've never grown up. You, you enjoyed, you know, oven chips and, and, and chicken nuggets out of the oven and those, you know, the, the cheap food that mum bought from Iceland in order to just fill you up. And, and then I remember the first time I was at a wedding and I tried filet steak, beautifully cooked with Stilton cheese melted in the middle. It was the first time some of you are pulling your face. It didn't ruin it, honestly. It was, it was, it was good. It was, it was awesome. I was, I was captivated with filet steak from that moment on. Sometimes, some things in life are so much, more, so much more beautiful than anything around that, that all the lesser things somehow seem like rubbish in comparison. When you fall in love and you decide to get married, that's basically what your heart says. All the other women in the world seem ugly in comparison with you, my beloved. And when she walks down the aisle on the wedding day, the only one in white, the only one who is so decked out in radiance, any man on that, in that moment, his eyes are transfixed on his bride because her beauty overshadows everything, everyone else in the room. And not in the flight of the Concords way. You know, you best looking woman in the room or on the street, depending on the street. You know, that kind of thing. You could be a part-time model. No, it's not that kind of thing. It's like, no, you have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes. And everything else, it just seems less compared to you. Now, friends, this is where we get to the answer to the questions. We loop back around to where we began. Do you remember how I asked you, how can something which is free cost you everything? Why do the most devoted followers of Jesus seem to lose the most in life? Why, why is it that there's so much suffering in discipleship when the gospel is supposed to be good news? And here's the answer, friends, because, because it's actually not a sacrifice. It looks like sacrifice from the outside in. But the heart that is captivated does not view those things as sacrifice at all. You don't miss things that are less than what you've gained. You don't want to trade in your filet for alphabeti spaghetti. One of my heroes was a preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones, who he was preacher at the Westminster Chapel across the river in the sort of mid 19 Hundreds, around the time of the Second World War for a couple of decades there. And, uh, you know, as a, as a young man, he trained to be a doctor at St. Bartholomew's, Bart's, which at the time was the best medical college in the country and, and maybe the best in the world. And he attained to the heights 
of success very rapidly in the medical field. Before he was 25, he was the personal assistant to the top doctor in the country, who was a man called Lord Horder. Lord Horder had a phenomenal and formidable reputation in the medical world. And, and he selected Lloyd-Jones to be his, his trainee, effectively. Lord Horder was the doctor to the, to the king. And Lloyd-Jones, had a, his, his career was on a stratospheric path because of his intelligence, his gifts, his abilities as a doctor. He was doing groundbreaking research, I think on endocomitis, is that the word? I'll ask you later. On something medical. And um, (laughs) you know what? By the time he was sort of 24, Jesus had begun to capture his heart. He he became a Christian in, in a real sense where he suddenly understood the gospel. And he began to wrestle with whether he was called to be a preacher instead of a doctor. <clears throat> and he wrestled so severely with this that over the course of a year, he lost stones in weight or pounds or kilograms, whatever. He lost a lot of weight and became much thinner because of the agony of spirit. Because of what he would have to lay down if he wanted to be a preacher. But eventually he made that decision to become a minister of the gospel. And in becoming a minister, he didn't just want to become a minister of a prominent London church, which was an option for him. He decided to to go back to his denomination that he loved in Wales and ask them, what's the hardest church in the hardest area of Wales? And they put him in a place called Aberavon, in South Wales, in a very depressed industrial and mining community, in a struggling little mission hall or church there in Aberavon. And he began preaching the gospel. This high flyer from London coming back to his roots in Wales and preaching to what was at the time a small and struggling congregation. Financially struggling, numerically struggling. Now the course of his life was extraordinary. The church that he preached there in there began to grow. And they experienced something of a revival as many people in the town became believers in Jesus. And the church grew to many hundreds strong. Many, many of them were baptized under his ministry there. And eventually, God brought him back to central London, to Westminster Chapel. And he had a phenomenal worldwide uh, ministry of his preaching, touching people all over the globe. And he is still recognized being one of the best preachers who ever lived. So challenging, so wonderful, his books. But when he was asked as an old man about why he gave up medicine and the cost that he felt was paid there, his answer was like this. He says, I lost nothing. I gained everything. I count it the greatest honor God can confer upon a man to make him a minister of the gospel. Now I... I don't want you to take from that the idea that somehow being a full-time minister of the gospel is better than other careers. I think he could have been a doctor for the glory of God. But what he means is much like Paul says here, I looked at my life without, of, of, of not being a preacher. He says, I count it as rubbish. The wealth, the respect, the opportunities I had without, in medicine, he says, I count it as rubbish. I lost nothing. I gained everything. I gained everything. And so, friends, 
this is how we understand what loss is in the Christian life, what sacrifice is, how Hudson Taylor paid the price, how Bunyan paid the price, how the most radical Christians have paid the price through history. Friends, they haven't looked at it as a price to pay. They've recognized that none of that even comes close to, to Jesus. So when we look at our own hearts and our mixed motives and our double-mindedness, friends, I want you to understand that your, your struggle in, in the Christian life, and we all have them, is not a discipline problem. It's not a self-denial problem. That would be to misunderstand what's going on in your heart. The problem in our hearts is always a love problem. It's a question of what we love most. When our hearts are captivated by a love for Jesus, discipline is no longer needed. Self-denial doesn't feel like self-denial. Because you can say no to the things that are of lesser worth when you so love the Savior who purchased you. You look at the other things and you ask yourself, what is that worth in an ultimate sense? Does it have lasting worth? Does it have comparative worth when I lay it alongside Jesus himself? If we were a people who, who see Christ, we would be the most radical people on the face of the planet. Your devotion is measured by your ability to, to behold him whether your heart is captivated by him. So make it your prayer, friends. Make it your desperate prayer. Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus to me that my heart would see him so that this is no longer an issue for me, so that I'll pay any price, so that I'll go anywhere because Jesus is worth it completely. Amen? Amen.